0: Okay. I'm unmuted. Welcome. Welcome. You are listening to the unsanctioned citizen podcast edition of unsanction your mind. I'm your hostess Sheila Dean. Thank you for joining. I'm glad you're here. If you're here, um, first let me tell you a little about unsanction your mind. Unsanction your mind kind of evolved due to the need for what I call a heavy cultural leftist detox. Maybe tough to admit it, but this Western society had a real brush with communist authoritarianism or just authoritarianism, medical authoritarianism, all sorts of authoritarianism. And it led to hyperextended lockdowns, crushing social hysterias and political opportunism that, you know, a lot of people really took high advantage of and the worst, uh, casualties are probably children and, and mental health. So it was really difficult for a lot of people because so much more was going on than we initially understood. Um, and it wasn't just the disease. If it had just been the disease, it would have been one thing, but it wasn't. There was a, a massive cultural, Um, Vanguard to try to push us into a whole new type of government that we weren't really ready for. And we didn't vote on it. It was just an emergency state of mind. So the normal person misread the situation as kind of like a a simple pandemic. Uh, Other maneuvering wheels saw permanent change in our government based on emergency authority. So a lot of people understandably because being told, and rightfully so. Um, So they're relearning the lost art of, you know, their own personal intuition and respect for the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, uh, testing what they believe to be true, kind of relying on their own understanding of facts, and that's okay, you know, because you need to, to kind of, once in a while you need to kick the tires mentally of everything that's going on around you, but It was folded in as a ton of of distraction. We have a lot of uh, digital media that creates an enormous hurdle because it's always on media. So this is actually the second render of this reading because the first reading was lost before we could publish it on accident. So my apologies, but it gives me a second opportunity to refine my points and possibly take some calls after this reading For a brief comment and discussion of Donald Robertson's book, Stoicism and the Art of Happiness: Practical Wisdom for Everyday Life. Uh, One of the problems associated with modern conventions are issues of ill prioritized distractions, which I just mentioned. Um, Lately, I have been relying rather heavily on time budgets for all all sorts of media consumption. So, just because the world has an enormous glut of it, so I'm also working to promote this program produce at least one weekly episode and then start attending local open mics to stretch my comic delivery offering, which means on a Tuesday there will be jokes either coming or going, but there will be some jokes, uh, trying to get out there and I'll probably be bombing a lot, but that's okay. Um, practical wisdom for everyday life stoicism. So, one of the problems associated blah, blah blah the one of the problems associated with modern conventions are issues of ill-prioritized distractions so getting the dry corners off here this is spring the weeds are really thick and it makes gardening in the yard so discouraging that you want to blow up the yard and do some form of xeriscape so you could get away with that in the Southwest, but most people want a real garden versus a bunch of flowering succulents and thorny cacti. So this means necessarily you're going to have to accept the fact that you cannot control emergence of weeds in your garden. And uh, the crowded distracted mind is similar. So one of the benefits of stoicism is that you can peel away your cares and not devote enter- energy by, you know, being a crank over things you can't actually control. So then the energy is more available and plentiful for the things you actually need to do and want to do, things that you choose. So you can focus on what you want and more of what you need versus making room for a bunch of energy vampires in your life. So let's get to it. Uh, I will be reading from the third chapter of Stoicism and the Art of Happiness, Practical Wisdom for Every Day Life. Again, thank you for joining me. Okay, so this is the promise of philosophy, therapy of the passions. And in this chapter, you will learn about the ancient Stoic concept of perfect happiness or eudaimonia, the promise of philosophy, that Stoics sought to replace unhealthy passions or pathological fears and cravings with opposing such as rational joy feelings towards others, how unhealthy passions are ultimately based on voluntary judgments and actions, which follow the initial automatic reactions stoics call proto passions. So what is the ancient promise of philosophy? What does stoic philosophy demand from us? What promise does it hold and out in return? What are the causes of the irrational desires and emotional disturbances for which people seek a remedy in philosophy? What about positive feelings like joy, tranquility and love before getting further in the theory and practice it's traditional to explore what motivates people to become students of stoic philosophy in the first place. Stoicism is a hard road to follow but we're told its benefits should, in a manner of speaking, be common sense with a bit of help. We should be at least able to glimpse them from the outset. Although the perfect sage enjoys eudaimonia, Seneca claims that unless we embrace philosophy, the love of wisdom, life is not even bearable because emotional disturbances are allowed free reign. Indeed, the initial motive for most people to study Stoic philosophy was simply the alleviation of their own suffering, through the ultimate goal was to excel as a human being. So the promise of philosophy consists of both supreme happiness and fulfillment, eudaimonium, of the sage and the aspiring Stoics' gradual progress towards overcoming disturbing desires and emotions, apatheia Sometimes called the Stoic therapy of the passions. As far as the ancients learn, the philosopher's school is a doctor's clinic. Curiously, the Stoics appear to attribute the exhortation to philosophy to Zeus himself, who promises us relief from suffering. Musonius Rufus taught that Zeus orders and encourages us to study philosophy. Now you can take the whole Zeus thing with a grain of salt <clears throat> because nobody worships Zeus today. He's more or less a, a dead iconic God of, you know, a sky God of representation of masculine fatherhood, etc. He's an archetype, but all, all the more that that is what Zeus is presumed to be for the course of this reading. So <clears throat> according to him, in a nutshell, the law of Zeus orders humans to be good which means being philosophers, loving wisdom, being virtuous and magnanimous, rising above pain and pleasure, and being free from animosity towards others. Epictetus follows his teacher and frequently places similar words in the mouth of Zeus, starting with the first of his discourses. He actually breaks away from his conversation with students to describe an imaginary dialogue between himself and Zeus, who is portrayed as saying, he has given us a small portion of himself, our ruling faculty, which gives us the power to make choices and decisions in life. It is our duty to take care of this divine faculty above all else, as it is our only true possession, and we are granted complete freedom in employing it. If we can learn to prize wisdom above all things, Zeus assures us that we will never be obstructed, never become upset or complain, and never become angry with or subservient to any other person. That's high ambition. Uh, The point Epictetus was making is that the basic principles of Stoicism are learnable from a reflection on human nature. They're fundamentally common sense as Zeus has planted the seed of virtue deep within all of us, And so the goal of of life is in our very nature. Elsewhere, he asks his students whether Zeus or nature has not already given them their orders, clearly enough, from the day they were born. Nature has given us what is ours, our judgment and volition, to use freely and accord with virtue. She has placed everything else beyond our direct control, subject to obstacles and interference. Guard by every means that which is your own, but do not grasp at that which is another's. Although the words vary, most of the time Epictetus portrays Zeus as thundering the same basic stoic message. If you wish any good thing, get it from yourself. Nature herself calls us to true happiness and the good life, whispering that we must seek it within ourselves rather than external things. If only we can do this consistently, Epictetus says, we will achieve perfect freedom and liberate ourselves from emotional suffering. Happiness or fulfillment, eudaimonia, was known in ancient times as the promise of philosophy. As we've seen, most schools of philosophy agreed that this was what they were aiming for, but they disagreed about precisely what it meant. In fact, their different definitions of eudaimonia distinguished one school from another. Zeno described it very concisely as smoothly flowing or serene life, a life of freedom from being thwarted or obstructed in what we seek to achieve. He made it clear that this is achieved by living in harmonious agreement with nature in accordance with virtue. However, life is warfare, and the Stoic achieves serenity by arming himself to face whatever may be inflicted on him by the vicissitudes of events, the turning wheel of fortune. The promise of philosophy was therefore the promise of both happiness and the emotional resilience to retain it in the face of those setbacks. For what does the promise amount to? This, that heaven willing, philosophy will ensure that the man who has obeyed its laws shall never fail to be armed against all the hazards of fortune, That he shall possess and control within his own self every possible guarantee for a satisfactory and happy life. In other words, that he shall always be a happy man. Elsewhere, sorry, Cicero portrays happiness in the terms of the inner citadel of Stoicism. Take a little drink here. It's a froggy morning in Texas. <clears throat> Sorry. The inter- citadel of Stoicism. We want the happy man to be safe, impregnable, fenced and fortified so that he is not just largely unafraid, but completely. One of the most important philosophical arguments of the Stoics was that it is impossible to imagine someone who is a wise and good man having attained perfect eudaimonia and still being enslaved by pathological desires and emotions. The Stoics famously refer to these as the passions, (pathē). They believe them to be the root cause of all human suffering and essentially toxic to eudaimonia. <clears throat> the ability to overcome unhealthy fears and desires is termed apatheia, being passionless or rather without passions of the problematic sort. It is where our our word apathy comes from, but that's not what it means. As Keith Seddon, a modern Stoic author, puts it, the Stoic will be apatheis, without passion, not apathetic, but dispassionate, but not wholly without feeling. And the Stoics therefore refer to the sage as having attained tranquility and freedom from enslavement to his passions. However, these endeavors to overcome the passions have caused much confusion and led to the widespread misconception that the Stoics are somehow unemotional or seek to repress their feelings. This is largely based on a misunderstanding caused by problems of modern translation and interpretation. It's simply not what they meant. This misinterpretation was repeatedly addressed by the ancient Stoics themselves, though, Let's pause to reflect on what they actually said. They, the founders of stoicism, say the wise man is also passionless because he is not vulnerable to them. But the bad man is called passionless in a different sense, which means that he is the same as hard-hearted and insensitive. Zeno meant that the wise man is not enslaved by his feelings of fear or desire or ex- Explicitly told here that that's not the same as being hard-hearted and insensitive, which is the false impression many people have today of Stoicism. The Roman Stoic Laelus was portrayed centuries later in a dialogue by Cicero as saying that it would actually be the greatest possible mistake to try to eliminate natural and healthy feelings, such as those of friendship, because even the animals experience affection for their offspring, which Stoics viewed as the foundation of human love and friendship. We would not only be dehumanizing ourselves by eliminating such natural feelings, he says, but reducing ourselves below animal nature to something more like a mere tree trunk or a stone. We should therefore turn a deaf ear to anyone who foolishly suggests that the good life entails having the hardness of iron in terms of our emotions. Epictetus also taught his students that we ought not to be free from passions in the sense that of being unfeeling, like a statue, because Stoics do care about their family and fellow citizens for whom they continue to have natural affection and a sense of kinship or affinity. As Seneca likewise says, there are misfortunes which strike the sage without incapacitating him, of course, such as physical pain infirmity, the loss of friends or children, or the catastrophes of his country when it is devastated by war. I grant that he is sensitive to these things, for we do not impute him the hardness of a rock or of iron. There is no virtue in putting up with that which one does not feel. So there would be a problem, as Seneca points out here, if we did assume that the Stoic sage was completely devoid of emotion, It recalls a story about Diogenes, the cynic, who was asked by a Spartan if he was feeling cold when training himself by stripping naked and embracing a bronze statue in winter. Diogenes said he was not, and the Spartan replied, so what is so impressive about what you're doing then? As Seneca implies, the stoic virtues of courage and self-discipline appear to presuppose that the sage actually experiences something akin to fear and desire. Otherwise, he has no feelings to overcome. A brave man isn't someone who doesn't experience any trace of anxiety whatsoever, but someone who acts courageously despite feeling nervous. A man who has great self-discipline or restraint, likewise, isn't someone who feels no inkling of desire, but someone who overcomes his craving by abstaining from acting upon them. The sage conquers his passions by becoming stronger than them, not by eliminating all traces of emotion from his life. The stoic ideal, therefore, is not to be passionless in the sense of being apathetic or hard-hearted or insensitive or like a statue of stone or iron. Rather, it is to experience natural affection for ourselves, our loved ones, and other human beings, and to value our lives in accord with nature, which arguably opens us up to experiencing certain natural emotional reactions to loss or frustration. The Stoics call these proto-passions, or the first movements of emotion as we'll see later. The sage does not feel these emerging feelings, but does not go along with them or dwell on them as people ordinarily do. Hence, Seneca elsewhere explains, whereas others might mean a mind-immune to feeling, when they speak of Apatheia, this is actually the opposite of what the Stoics mean. This is the difference between us Stoics and the Epicureans. Our wise man overcomes every discomfort, but feels it. Theirs does not even feel it. The virtue of the sage consists in his ability to endure painful feelings and rise above them. While continuing to maintain his relationships and interaction with the world to care sufficiently about ourselves and others to expose ourselves to painful feelings, but not enough to worry morbidly, He should love others but remain unperturbed. In fact, the earliest Stoic writings defined the passions they sought to overcome as consisting of irrational, excessive, and unhealthy forms of fear and desire. They are said to be unnatural in the sense of harming our pursuit of fulfillment in life. It is somewhat less well-known that these were contrasted with a range of healthy passions, which, although not pursued directly by the Stoics, were thought to supervene as a kind of additional reward following virtuous living. As several of the leading academic scholars of Stoicism have emphasized, The inclusion of good feelings in the Stoics' mental repertoire shows that their philosophy did not countenance extirpation of all emotions. Indeed, healthy feelings such as love and natural affection towards others play an important but often overlooked role in Stoicism. When Marcus Aurelius describes the Stoic ideal as being free from passions yet full of love, He clearly meant that the passions in question are bad or unhealthy feelings to be distinguished from what Stoics call natural affection or rational love for others. The problem of the passions inevitably meant that a kind of ancient psychological therapy was integral to Stoicism. Indeed, the topic of eudaimonia naturally links Stoic ethics to psychological therapy as most ancient philosophies equated the good in life with what is good for us, beneficial or helpful in the sense of contributing to our fundamental health and well-being, not physically, but mentally and morally in terms of our character. You could therefore say that self-help was an integral aspect of Stoic ethics, and this is not only resembling modern therapy, but was quite explicitly represented as a form of medicine or therapy for the mind by ancient authors. The Stoics, therefore, more than any other school, focused on philosophy as a way of life. They learned specific ways of training themselves to overcome their unhealthy passions and progress towards the lofty ideal of virtue. Some people have argued that stoicism is purely a philosophy with ethical emphasis and should not be confused with a psychological therapy. However, these two things were seen as equivalent by Zeno and his followers. Stoicism, as we've seen, neatly combines ethics, self-improvement, and psychotherapy. <clears throat> so there's a, uh, there's a case study here. So I read this yesterday. I'm going to read this case study. This is The Choice of Hercules. Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, was repeatedly inspired to study philosophy after reading the second book of Xenophon's Memorabilia of Socrates. This begins with a chapter in which Socrates recounts Prodicus' famous allegory known as The Choice of Hercules. The Stoics, like their forerunners, the cynics, viewed Hercules as the greatest of Zeus' sons, as an exemplary role model, demonstrating the self-discipline and endurance required to be a true philosopher. Zeno himself was perhaps, compared to Hercules, and we know that his successor, Cleanthes was dubbed a second Hercules on account of his self-mastery. The story symbolizes the great challenge of deciding who we actually want to be in life and what type of life we want to live. The promise of philosophy and the temptation of vice. So we're told Hercules, when a young man found himself in an isolated fork in the road, where he sat to contemplate his future, uncertain which path to take in life, he found himself confronted by two goddesses. One, a very beautiful and alluring woman, was called Kekia, although she claimed that her friends called her happiness, eudaimonia She charged in front of him to ensure that she spoke first, promising Hercules that her path was the easiest and pleasantest and that it provided shortcuts to happiness. She claimed that he would avoid hardship and enjoy luxury beyond men's wildest dreams, living like a king by the labor of others. So Hercules was then approached by the second goddess called Arita, a plain dressed and humble woman, though naturally beautiful. To his surprise, she told him that her path would require hard work for him, and it would be long and difficult. Hercules would face danger. He would be tested by many hardships, and perhaps more than any man who had lived before, and have to, ingrate, to endure great loss and suffering along the way. Nothing that is really good and admirable, said Arita, is granted by the gods to men without some effort and application. However, Hercules would have the opportunity to face each adversity with courage and self-discipline and to show wisdom and justice despite great danger. He would earn true happiness by fulfilling his natural potential as a hero and reflecting on the knowledge of his own praiseworthy and honorable deeds. Hercules, of course, chose the path of Arita or virtue, and was not seduced by kikia, or vice. He faced continual persecution from the goddess Hera and was forced to undertake the legendary 12 labors, including the slaying of the Hydra and ultimately entering Hades, the underworld itself, to capture the monster Cerebus with his bare hands. He died in extreme agony, poisoned by the clothing soaked in the Hydra's blood. However, Zeus was so impressed by his greatness of soul that he elevated him to the status of a god in his own right. So whether or not this whether or not reading this particular story inspired Zeno's conversion to the life of a of a philosopher, it certainly influenced later generations of Stoics. They treated it as metaphor for the good life, that it's better to face hardships, rise above them and thereby excel than to embrace easy living and idleness, and allow your soul to shrink and deteriorate as a result. So, the Stoic concept of happiness, eudaimonia. Eudaimonia is the ancient promise of philosophy. The word eudaimonia is usually translated as happiness, although that doesn't capture the philosophical meaning very well. It refers more to the overall quality of someone's life rather than their mood. The alternative Modern translation, therefore, include good fortune, fulfillment, well being, flourishing, etc. An ancient dictionary of philosophical terms attributed to Plato, but probably written in, in by his immediate followers, defined it as follows The good, composed of all goods, an ability which suffices for living well, perfection in respect of virtue, sufficient beneficial things for a living creature. It basically refers to the blessed or exalted condition of someone who's living a, a good life. Whereas for other philosophical schools that might imply someone enjoying an external good fortune, for the Stoics, being a good person and having a good life are synonymous. Bodily and external things are therefore completely irrelevant and different with regard to eudaimonia. Happiness and unhappiness consist in how we respond to events and the use we make of them. Taken literally, the word eudaimonia actually means having a good daemon. Or the divine spark or spirit within. We still speak today of being in good spirits. The theological terms, Chrysippus therefore interpreted, interpreted eudaimonia as the smoothly flowing life that comes from having our daemon, our innermost spirit, In complete harmony with the will of Zeus, (laughs) great assault, great assault, by bringing our judgments to completely into agreement with our fate. Centuries later, Marcus Aurelius interpreted the word in a similar manner, referring to the perfection of the divine spark within or a ruling faculty in accord with nature. Philosophical eudaimonia is a condition in which a person of excellent character is living optimally well, flourishing, doing admirably, and steadily enjoying the best mindset that is available to human beings. The Stoics in particular took the complete attainment of such a condition to be well nigh impossible, yet so worth striving for that no human being who grasped its its attractions would wish to settle for less. In fact... They said the perfect sage who had attained eudaimonia must be as rare as the Ethiopian phoenix, which was born every 500 years, according to legend. On the other hand, the Stoics believe that nature wants us to flourish and perfect ourselves. We have been handed life in order to bring ourselves to a state of completion by excelling in accord with virtue. Nature planted within each of us has the capacity to dream, as it were, and envisage an ideal human being called the sage, or wise man, by Stoics, and therefore to navigate towards that distant goal. So what difference is there, if any, between eudaimonia and virtue in Stoic philosophy? Well, the Stoics certainly make virtue both necessary and sufficient for eudaimonia, However, Chrysippus reputedly said that if someone acts with wisdom and virtue, his life is not yet happy, but happiness supervenes on him when these actions become secure and fixed through firmly grasped knowledge. As we shall see, the Stoics also refer to certain healthy passions, which automatically supervene upon virtue. Zeno repeatedly said that the good things include the various virtues, but also, in some accounts, healthy passions, such as joy, and good spirits, and confidence, and well-wishing. Centuries later, Musonius Rufus taught that when we act virtuously and according to our own nature, a cheerful disposition and secure joy automatically accompany these attributes. So it comes as a surprise to some people to learn that Stoicism was intended as a fundamentally joyful or cheerful philosophy of life. Sorry. So let's look at the Stoic theory of the passions. The Stoics had quite a specific psychological theory. So this is an area where Greek jargon is unavoidable. Pausing for a step. So in particular, the word passion is used in a special sense. Cicero's Cato, struggling to translate Greek Stoicism into Latin, says that the passions make the lives of most people misery, and that he was tempted simply to translate this term as illness, but thinks emotional disturbance or perturbation makes more sense as a general term. In fact, our modern word pathology the study of suffering, comes from the same Greek root as passion, a word which still denotes suffering in phrases such as the passion of Christ. When Stoics talk about the ordinary passions experienced by the majority of people, they mean that these are typically disturbing desires and emotions of an irrational, unhealthy, or excessive sort. They're contrasted by the healthy passions experienced by the sage. However, especially among Roman Stoics, it appears to have been accepted that those making progress, aspiring Stoics, may experience glimpses of these healthy desires and emotions, though lacking perfect wisdom. Nevertheless, the vast majority of ordinary people were dubbed sick or insane by the Stoics because their lives are blighted by toxic fears and desires. Just as there are ailments in the body, physical sicknesses, so too there are ailments of the mind or moral sicknesses, which Stoics claim are based on the faulty value judgments. For example, the Stoics hold that mistakenly judging superficial things to be intrinsically good, helpful, or desirable is the basis of excessive craving for pleasure, wealth, reputation, etc. So we may also suffer from irrational judgments about what is bad, Harmful or aversive, such as fear or hatred for things that are actually indifferent with regard to our ultimate well being, including pain, hardship, poverty, or ridicule. In other words, the majority of ordinary people lack fulfillment and peace of mind because their values are confused and internally conflicted. We waste our lives chasing after an illusion of happiness based on a mixture of hedonism. Materialism and egotism, crazy self defeating values absorbed from the foolish world around us. So, these passions are therefore intimately connected and possibly even identical with our judgments and behavioral inclinations. For example, we're told that the passion of avarice, an excessive feeling of craving towards wealth, is the judgment that money is intrinsically good, combined with the intention to obtain it. The Stoics. The early Stoics describe three closely related aspects of these disturbing passions. <clears throat> One, irrational judgments about what's good or bad. Two, unnatural or unhealthy mental activity. Three, excessive impulses to action or intentions to attain what's good and avoid what is bad. So people try to excuse all sorts of morbid or blameworthy behavior by saying it's natural to feel and act that way. By contrast, the Stoics describe the passions as fundamentally going against our true nature as rational beings and therefore in conflict with the supreme Stoic goal of living in accord with nature. In his book on passions, Zeno apparently classified them into four categories. Pain, fear, craving, and pleasure. Pain, fear, craving, and pleasure. Stoic passages compiled by the ancient commentators Diogenes Laertius and Strobius, sorry about that. and further subdivisions which are included below to help clarify what's meant. So number one, pain. Sometimes translated as suffering or grief, an irrational contraction of the soul. Over the failure to avoid something judged bad or to obtain something judged good. Irrational pain takes the form of unhealthy feelings of pity, envy, resentment, sorrow, anguish, etc. 2. Fear. The irrational expectation of something bad or harmful. Irrational fear takes the form of feeling dread, nervousness, worry, shame, shock, panic, etc. 3. Craving Implying hunger or lust, an irrational striving for something falsely judged to be good or beneficial. Irrational craving takes the form of fertile yearning, hatred, anger, sexual lust, as well as the love of pleasure love of wealth, love of reputation, etc. Four, pleasure, as in hedonism. An irrational relation over what seems to be worth choosing, i.e. what is falsely judged to be good or beneficial. Irrational and healthy pleasure takes the form of self-indulgence, decadence, being verbally enchanted or seduced by flattery. Sadistic joy in someone else's misfortune, etc., etc. So fear and craving apparently more fundamental, because pain results when we fail to obtain or lose what we crave, and when we fail to avoid what we fear, whereas pleasure results when we do obtain what we crave or avoid what we fear, the pleasure of relief. The Stoics believe our lives go more smoothly when we experience more gratitude for what we have than, rather than desiring too strongly that which we do not have. So when Stoics talk about the passions called pain, they clearly have in mind emotional pain, suffering, or grief, rather than the physical sensation of pain. Cicero explains that for Stoics, the Greek term hedone or pleasure, can refer to the pleasurable feelings in the mind or pleasant sensations in the body. The irrational passion of pleasure is really the sensuous delight of the exultant mind, as he puts it, which is bad or harmful because it's based on an overvaluation of bodily or external things. So by it's, it's overbuilt. By contrast, mere bodily sensations of pleasure and pain are classed as ultimately harmless and indifferent by the Stoics. Notice that by, notice also that the examples of pleasure the Stoics list are obviously unhealthy feelings rather than what we might call healthy pleasure. These include the egotistical pleasure that comes from being seduced by flatterers, sadistic or malicious pleasure, and the misfortune of others, or self-indulgent pleasures which corrupt and weaken our minds. Seneca refers to these as empty pleasures, and we might even call them toxic or pathological. Finally, note that the irrational desires or craving include the feelings of sexual lust, but also angry or hateful feelings, which the Stoics interpret as desire for another to suffer harm. In fact, anger often seems to be the passion which Stoics were most concerned about. We actually have a whole book by Seneca entitled On Anger about the Stoic approach to prevention and therapy of this specific passion. So the Stoics had their own brand of anger management, which is pretty cool. So automatic emotional reactions. The Stoics acknowledge that passions begin with an initial involuntary movement of the soul, an emotional reflex reaction that we can't really control. Seneca actually explains that nothing which rouses the mind spontaneously without its voluntary assent, can co- be called a passion in the Stoic sense. Flushing, tears, changes in breathing are merely reflex-like emotion, emotional reactions to some impression rather than full-blown passions. And so Stoics call them proto-passions. Once they've happened, the Stoic has no choice but to accept them as outside his or her direct control. But he or she can choose to not perturbate them any further. In his consolation to Polybus, who was grieving over the loss of his brother, for example, Seneca wrote, Nature requires from us some sorrow, while more than this is the result of vanity. But never will I demand of you that you should not grave at all. Reason guides us towards a balanced response, which is the mark of natural affection rather than an unbalanced mind, allowing our automatic emotional reactions to run their course without choosing to morbidly ruminate over events. He adds, let your tears flow, but let them also cease. Let deepest sighs be drawn from your breast, but also let them find an end. Another good example of automatic emotional reaction is blushing. Seneca says a young philosopher prone to it will probably continue to blush even if he attains perfect wisdom and becomes an enlightened sage. For no amount of wisdom enables one to do away with the physical or mental weaknesses that arise from natural causes. Anything inborn or ingrained in one can by dint of practice be allied, but not overcome. Philosophy does not have an absolute dominion over our physical nature. And even a sage may initially blush or stammer under certain circumstances, although he will regain his composure later. Wisdom offers no remedy for this because it is not a voluntary action to begin with. So if it's voluntary, then you can put your controls on it. If it's involuntary, you can't really put your controls on it. So, one of the clearest discussions of the roles of the proto-passions is found in Seneca's On Anger, where he appears to describe the stages of the passions as follows. One, the proto-passion, or first movement of the mind, arises involuntarily as a preparation for emotion, an automatic reaction triggered by external impressions or bodily sensations, such as shock in response to a sudden startling noise. We can no more avoid this than we can avoid reflexes, such as blinking when a finger is poked towards our eye. Although Seneca thinks that concentrating might perhaps weaken some of these reactions eventually. Okay, two. In the second movement, we give assent to the initial disturbing impression, fusing it with the value judgment that it concerns something absolutely good or bad, helpful or harmful from which further judgments follow about what is appropriate to do. It is appropriate for me to be avenged since I am injured. Ordinarily voluntary assent happens, to, happens so habitually that we barely notice it occurring, but it can be counteracted by suspending judgment and focusing on opposing judgments, such as the idea of what the sage would do in the same situation. And the third movement, this is three, we lose control. Passions arises, uh, passions arise and it overthrows reason uh, by allowing us to get carried away into excessive, irrational, and unhealthy desires and emotion which seek to have their way at all costs, even at the expense of wisdom and virtue. So uh, an ancient writer called Aulus Gellius tells a related story in Attic Nights written in the 2nd century AD. During a stormy trip at sea, an unnamed Stoic philosopher was seen to become pale and nervous. Once ashore, Gellius asked how a Stoic, who was supposed to have no emotions, grew so pale in the storm. The Stoic explained himself by taking out a copy of Epictetus' Discourses and reading a passage from the Lost Fifth Book. According to Gellius, Epictetus says... That when a terrifying sound surprises us, such as a thunder or a falling building, you know, or when we're suddenly confronted by news of some impending danger, even a sage is necessarily disturbed because the initial impression forces itself on his mind. He may grow pale and shrink back automatically for a moment. This isn't due to the judgment that something intrinsically as bad is about to happen, but because of very rapid involuntary bodily reactions. However, the sage will not give his assent or maybe consent to these terrifying impressions by making corresponding value judgment. He rejects them completely, judging there to be no reason to continue being afraid. We might imagine him saying to himself, even though I feel myself growing pale, I know it's just my body reacting to the choppy waves and there's no real danger for me to fear. This is the key difference between the sage and ordinary people. The foolish person assents to his initial impressions of danger or of impending harm, confirming them with his judgment and concludes that he is right to cower in fear. The sage by contrast is affected only by superficially and momentarily but he remains consistent in his philosophical judgment that the things that appear terrifying are actually indifferent and don't deserve to be feared. These are empty terrors, like someone wearing a frightening mask that might startle us at first until we realize it's just a mask and nothing of which we need to be afraid. So what about the healthy or good passions? You know, and I really appreciate you guys sticking it out. We've had up to nine people in this room and it, it's just a wonderful thing to have. So I appreciate everyone who's made it out and who's listening. So we're going to talk about the good or healthy passions to, to wrap this. Um, it is important to emphasize the role of joyful and affectionate feelings in stoicism because this helps to rectify the misconception that stoicism is about being emotionless. In fact, the ancient... Stoics aspire to replace the bad or unhealthy passions as defined above with good or healthy ones, naturally associated with wisdom and virtue. Diogenes Laertius said that good passions, such as joy and cheerfulness, are not themselves virtues, but temporarily supervene as consequences of them. Although, strictly speaking, only the perfect sage possesses these good passions, the Stoics tend to speak of those making progress as experiencing glimpses of them. They only fall into three categories because there is no voluntary, rational, and healthy form of emotional pain or grief. One, joy or delight, kara, is a feeling of rational elation, positive emotion over virtue, as the truly good, which is an alternative to irrational pleasure or healthy joy can take that form of delight, good cheer, or peace of mind, tranquility. Two, caution or discretion is a feeling of rational aversion towards vice as truly bad and harmful and the healthy alternative to irrational fear. It can take the form of a sense of dignity and self-respect or a sense of purity and sanctity, maybe a casual self-defense, you know, as it could even be thought of as a form of mindfulness. Three, wishing or willing is a rational desire for virtue as genuinely good and beneficial and the alternative to a rational craving. Healthy wishing can take in the form of affection, kindheartedness, benevolence, presumably the wish for oneself and others to flourish in accordance with virtue and presumably related to Stoic conceptions of love or natural affection. So Seneca explains that Stoic joy comes from reflecting on our own virtuous actions, something we're all capable of experiencing, albeit in glimpses, compared to the secure joy that takes root within the perfect sage. However, he emphasizes that unlike the Epicureans who make feelings of pleasure and the absence of pain, the chief good in life, Feelings of joy are not the stoic's motive for acting in a virtuous way. He or she is not guaranteed to experience them in every circumstance, especially when acting quickly without opportunity for reflection. And similar feelings can arise from other non-virtuous causes. Indeed, even robbed of this feeling, she will not he or she will not hesitate to face adversity with honor, viewing these appropriate actions as their duty and their own reward. The Stoics were clear that virtue must be its own reward. Otherwise cracks appear in the edifice of morality that make it vulnerable to collapse under pressure. The good feelings or healthy passions are sort of an added bonus, but they're not, they cannot be the primary motive for action because they're not entirely under our control. So the Stoics have to be willing to be act with courage, be willing to act with courage and integrity despite their feelings rather than because of them, and even when fears and desires are calling them in the opposite direction. In other words, when the call to arms resounds, the stoic hero cannot be left waiting for a warm glow of positive emotion to descend before rushing towards the battle. Although a special sense of joy often follows in in its wake, Virtue is its own reward and the only thing worth desiring for its own sake. To put it crudely, feelings of joy and tranquility are only truly good and healthy insofar as they are consequences of practical wisdom and virtue, and not if they result from other causes. It's not consistent with stoicism to pursue them for their own sake, at all costs, at the expense of wisdom and virtue. Tranquility is also something left of a dead end as a goal because it doesn't necessarily lead on to other good things or maintain itself in a way that practical wisdom does. Wisdom is the ability to know how to use everything beneficially and it can even reflect on and evaluate itself. Nevertheless, if living in agreement with nature and in accord with virtue is the goal of life, it must entail some form of prevention or therapy for for pathological fears and desires. So stoicism, therefore, contains a psychological therapy, a precursor of modern CBT. Although the real girl, the real goal is virtue. And so joy and tranquility are kind of an added bonus. So I have come to the end of my chapter work here. So it's the wrapping points. That the promise of philosophy, according to Stoics, is that by living in accord with wisdom and virtue, following nature, we may attain perfect happiness and fulfillment, eudaimonia. And although eudaimonia includes certain feelings such as joy and tranquility, these are not the central goal of Stoic practice but merely positive side effects of virtue. The Stoic sage experienced healthy passions that are rooted in his practical wisdom, such as joy. Caution, well-wishing, and affection. The ancient Stoics conceded that automatic emotional reactions or proto-passions, such as stammering or blushing have to be accepted as beyond our control, but believed that we can change what happens next by withholding our assent in the initial impressions that upset us. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, if anybody would like to call in, um, and discuss your thoughts briefly, and I'll try to go ahead and take your call. Otherwise, uh, let's see here. Is there anybody? Here? Oh, hey, there's some listeners. We've got Joshua. Hey, Charlie. Thanks for joining again. Thanks, Joshua, for joining again. And then plus three others, Derek, Moe, much appreciated for this second reading. I think, I think we are at the end of our reading though. If nobody's calling in, um, I'm just going to wrap it up by saying, uh, thank you for joining and, um, I'll be re, re, uh, producing this podcast and putting it out for you to refer to later. So thank you for joining the unsanctioned citizen podcast for unsanction your mind, reading the stoicism and the art of happiness.